Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. This is an update on Silicon Valley Bank and the ramifications of it. There are several governmental reports, I believe it was five or six, that were slotted to be released here in the next few months. And May 1st was a deadline for a couple of them. Most notably, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System issued their report, their first report, a summary of what happened and what steps they believe they need to take. And then also the Government Accountability Office, GAO, issued a report this last week. I've been perusing the report a little bit. I'm going to curl up with it a little bit more during the week, but I wanted to get a podcast out relative to, in particular, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve Systems report. And Michael Barr issued the report and has an interesting cover letter on the report that I'm going to read some information from and I have some comments relative to. So in the opening cover letter, um, Mr. Barr says, Silicon Valley Bank failed because of a textbook case of mismanagement by the bank. Its senior leadership failed to manage basic interest rate and liquidity risk. Its board of directors failed to oversee senior leadership and hold them accountable. And Federal Reserve supervisors failed to take forceful enough action as detailed in the report. So said another way, there's enough blame to go around. There's enough fingers to be pointed. And that's what happens when people lose billions and billions of dollars. There's postmortems, IG reports, GAO reports. And we're at the beginning of all this. It's going to take a few years for the dust to settle, although they are sending some signals on where things might go. Barr goes on to say, our banking system is sound and resilient with strong capital and liquidity. And in some respects, SBB was an outlier because of the extent of its highly concentrated business model, interest rate risk, and high level of reliance on uninsured deposits. So there he's referencing the fact that it was all tech companies or mostly tech companies on one side that they got their sources of money short and they put them in long-term assets. So they had a mismatch there. And then of course, the unprecedented 94% of uninsured deposits, which turned out to be fatal in Silicon Valley Bank's situation. However, SVB's failure demonstrates that there are weaknesses in regulation and supervision that must be addressed. So here we are, shot across the bow, weakness in regulation and weakness in supervision. So the regulation, which is delegated to the FDIC and the Fed, is something that they can do without legislation. And then, of course, the supervision, how they decide to supervise their banks is something that they have the ability to do. And they've talked about some things that that are problems relative to that. The interesting thing for credit unions will be what does NCUA do in regards to that? And I think there's one thing in particular that stands out to me, but I'll get to that soon. Following EB's failure, we must strengthen the Federal Reserve supervision and regulation based on what we have learned. This report represents the first step in that process, a self-assessment that takes an unflinching look at the conditions that led to the bank's failure, including the role of Federal Reserve supervision and regulation. An unfinching look, that's 
pretty interesting word for a government agency to use. Individuals who were not involved in the supervision of SVB conducted the review, and I oversaw it. Said another way, this was independent. Okay, all right, sure. The four key takeaways of the report are, number one, Silicon Valley's banks, board of directors, and management failed to manage their risks. 100% agree. Number two, supervisors, and that means the banking regulators, did not fully appreciate the extent of the vulnerabilities as Silicon Valley Bank grew in size and complexity. Sounds reasonable. Three, when supervisors did identify vulnerabilities, they did not take sufficient steps to ensure the Silicon Valley Bank fixed those problems quickly enough. And looking at the report, there's a term called, this is my term, not in the report, analysis paralysis. They kept trying to refine what was going on, how they were going to respond while the Titanic was heading towards the iceberg. Number four, the board's tailoring approach in response to the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act and a shift in the stance of supervisory policy impeded effective supervision by reducing standards, increasing complexity, and promoting a less assertive supervisory approach. So what happens when the economy is good and the further away you get from an economic crisis, you start to allow more things to happen as a regulator and you start to forget the lessons of the past. And people who have the experience tend to retire and less people have seen crisis. So you turn into a situation where it's harder and harder for the regulator to take exception because things are so good and it's easier and easier for the institutions to lose sight of those lessons of the past. And they have turnover at the institutions as well. So all of that and it looks like watering down EGRRCPA is also being cited here as an issue. Now, his letter, cover letter goes on to say, before discussing specific supervisor and regulatory changes that we should consider, I would like to touch on broader issues exposed by the failure of the bank. First, the combination of social media, a highly networked and concentrated depositor base, and technology may have fundamentally changed the speed of bank runs. Social media enabled depositors to instantly spread concerns about a bank run, and technology enabled immediate withdrawals of funding. So that is a big takeaway. It's the speed, there's a song, a speed of the sound of loneliness. That's, that's not what I want to reference here. The speed in which people can move money and the speed in which people can create a herd of people moving money is a huge difference as far as how banks that, that have big deposits are going to have to have to consider things. And the blessing here for credit unions is credit unions are substantially different. For example, the report has a chart that shows that 94% of Silicon Valley banks' deposits were uninsured. And if you compare that to the industry of banks, their uninsured deposits are about 41% and credit unions are only 9%. So banks have more large deposits, making them more challenged liquidity-wise for run-type situations. And again, banks on average are four times greater and, and Silicon Valley was 10 times greater. And I don't, last time I looked at the data, I don't believe there was anybody maybe one credit union that had about 40% of uninsured deposits, and that's the average in banks. So that's a huge differentiating factor. And ultimately, I think that's why NCUA is going to be able to take a more measured, more reasoned approach with credit unions. 
than will be mandated at banks by the FDIC and by the Federal Reserve. Barr goes on to say, second, I have previously stated a firm's distress may have systemic consequences through contagion where concerns about one firm spread to other firms. Even if the firm is not extremely large, highly connected to other financial counterparties or involved in critical financial services. So right there, what does that mean to me? That means they're going to use this systemic risk again when they need to. They're saying that they're kind of laying out a marker of of what type of situations can be considered systemic, that they don't necessarily have to be extremely large, that they don't necessarily have to be highly connected to other financial counterparties, or they don't have to be connected and involved in critical financial services. So what does that mean? That means that's an exception, that's a regulation that they're going to drive a truck through. So that while Congress thought that they mitigated the banking regulators' ability to rescue uninsured deposits, the regulators disagree with that, and they will use this tool again and again and again if needed. Just like the bank whose name escapes me, that stock plummeted last week, the bank that was propped up by $30 billion being put in by the largest other banks and that they had to sell another $100 billion in assets. But in any event, this signals that they're going to use this systemic loophole if needed. As risks in the financial system continue to evolve, we need to continuously evaluate our supervisory and regulatory framework and be humble about our ability to assess and identify new and emerging risks. This is why we need to bolster resiliency broadly in the financial system and not focus solely on the specific risk drivers. Some steps already in progress include the holistic review of our capital framework, implementation of the Basel III endgame rules, the use of multiple scenarios and stress testing, and a long-term debt rule to improve the resiliency and resolvability of larger banks. We plan to seek comment on these proposals soon. Other possible steps on what we have learned from the SVB report, SVB's failure and its contagion will follow later. So this 150-page report is just the beginning. But let's unpack this a little bit. This is why we need to bolster resiliency broadly in the financial system and not focus solely on the specific risk drivers. Some steps already in progress include the holistic review of our capital framework. So they're looking at more capital. Implementation of the Basel endgame rules, that's going to be if certain triggers hit, banks are going to have to bolster capital, I believe, and the use of multiple scenarios and stress testing. So the stress test rules that were in place for the big banks this last year focused on inflation. They had nothing to do with shocking interest rates, which is what killed these banks and what is hurting many financial institutions right now. So they're saying they're going to do multiple stress testing. How is that possible that that could trickle down to credit unions? Well, here's how. The $15 billion plus credit unions, uh, those that report to the Office of National Exam and Supervision, have to do stress testing that NCUA does the first few years, they hit 15 billion. And then after that, the credit unions have to do their own stress testing. And it has to be based on some statistics and some things that NCUA puts out. Well, NCUA travels with the herd. When the Fed says, this is how we're going to shock banks, NCUA says, essentially, this is how we're going to shock these big credit unions. So they're saying they're going to do different scenarios. And so you can expect those stress tests for the bigger credit unions to get more robust 
And oh, by the way, NCUA recently transitioned the $10 billion credit unions, 10 to $15 billion from control by ones to control by the regions. And there's some ramifications of this report that are going to trickle into this because NCUA says that they're going to capitalize on the one staff training the regional staff, which is easier said than done. But those 10 to $15 billion credit unions are going to have to comply with the requirements of the too big to fail for credit union rule. However, NCUA staff at that level isn't necessarily trained, but you can expect the trickle down of the increased level of scenario stress testing to go to that 10 to $15 billion. And as I've said in other podcasts, that ultimately will start to trickle down below the $10 billion level because what's good for the $10 billion credit union NCUA will ultimately have it bleed into the $9 billion and the $8 billion credit union. So that's a longer-term arc. It doesn't impact that many credit unions, but it does impact the big credit unions, so, you know, some of which uh, listen to this podcast and, and many of which are clients of mine. So this will be something I will be talking to my clients, and I'll be talking about it here on the podcast. The letter goes on to a bold intro paragraph here, Stronger Supervisory Framework. Our first area of focus will be to improve the speed force, and agility of supervision. That's a great sentence. The speed, force, and agility of supervision. So their exams are going to get the ability to be quicker. They're going to have more force to them. What does that mean? And agility. So it's always good to be agile. Force is not something that institutions like to hear that a regulator is going to be using, but I believe they're going to have ways of elevating things to a cease and desist level, tripwires and things that will allow staff to move things quicker through the supervisory trail to get a formal administrative action is probably where that's heading. As the report shows, in part because of the Federal Reserve's tailoring framework and the stance of supervisory policy, supervisors did not fully appreciate the extent of the bank's vulnerabilities or take sufficient steps to ensure that the bank fixed its problems quickly enough. There were I want to say many, many unresolved examination findings that were not elevated. And the Camel Code was solid. They were in the process of downgrading the credit union. But there were a lot of things that had been asked for that hadn't been resolved and then had not been elevated to a harsher Camel Code or harsher action requiring harsher actions. That's what they're referring to there. In SBB's case, the firm's rapid growth but slow transition to heightened standards contributed to the slow identification of risks and slow pace of the supervisor action. We need to evaluate how to ensure that supervision intensifies at the right pace as a firm grows in size and complexity. So they crossed a barrier where they needed more stress testing, where they needed more capital, and it went from the old group of supervision at the FDIC and and the Fed to the new group. And that transition, what's the word? Shall we say it was clunky? It didn't go that well. And the bank wasn't told to do what it needed to do under the new rules as quickly as it should have. Within our supervisory structure, we should introduce more continuity between the portfolios so that as a bank grows in size and changes its supervisory portfolio, the bank will be ready to comply with heightened regulatory supervisory standards more quickly rather than providing a long transition to comply with those heightened standards. So that's it's going from one examiner group to another examiner group. They hit the threshold. They have more things that apply to them. So this ties directly to the transition from going from being 
supervised by the region to being supervised by the Office of National Exam and Supervisions that I'm talking about there. So that's where I do see some correlations and some trickle down that NCUA may have some takeaways down the road. Now, I don't think NCUA will do anything in the sh- real quick short term, but I believe this is something that they'll be looking at. We also need to be attentive to the particular risks that firms with rapid growth, concentrated business models, or other special factors might pose regardless of asset size. As I have previously announced, the Federal Reserve has begun to build a dedicated novel activity supervisory group to focus on the risks of novel activities such as fintech or crypto activities as a complement to existing supervisory teams. As we do so, we will identify whether there are other risk factors such as a high growth or concentration that warrants additional supervisory attention. So that's a great sentence. What do government agencies do when they want to tackle a problem? They form a committee. By the way, committees can do some good, but nowhere in this country is there a statute to recognize the fine work of a committee because committee is sometimes where ideas go to die. So maybe some good will come from this committee, or maybe this idea will get wrestled to death in a committee if they don't give them the broad authorities that they need. But I love that sentence. As I previously announced, the Federal Reserve has begun to build a dedicated Novel Activity Supervisory Group. We're going to call that the NASG, the NASG, to focus on the risks of novel activities such as fintech or crypto activities. So crypto, NCUA has been a little bit, I don't know, a little less aggressive on crypto. The other banking regulators had a joint letter that NCUA did not participate in. And it's interesting to see they're lumping crypto in here as a novel activity that might need to have a look at by the supervisory group. All kidding aside, looking at risks like this makes sense. It's interesting. I can't wait to see the first reports publicly that come from this novel activity supervisory group. Once issues are identified, they should be addressed more quickly, both by the bank and by supervisors. Today, for example, the Federal Reserve generally does not require additional capital or liquidity beyond regulatory requirements for a firm with inadequate capital planning, liquidity risk management, or governance and controls. I'm going to repeat that. Today, for example, the Federal Reserve generally does not require additional capital or liquidity beyond regulatory requirements for a firm with inadequate capital planning, liquidity risk management, or governance control. So is he saying there that if you have inadequate capital planning, we might make you hold more capital? Is he saying that if you have inadequate liquidity risk management, we're going to make you hold twice as much in cash? It implies that that's what that they may have some levers and give examiners some ability to do that. Now, that can trickle down into less lending ability for the banks because if they have to hold more cash or they have to retain more capital, it's going to have ramifications on, on the economy. It's going to have ramifications on Camel codes is going to have ramifications on the examination in banks. Potentially, holding more liquidity, holding more capital is something that theoretically could trickle into credit unions. I think that may be more on a case-by-case basis as NCUA deals with outliers that have low gap equity, have high borrowings, and potentially use of other than member deposits. I'm seeing some of that from some of my clients. This is an area to watch where NCUA could get a little bit more aggressive. 
Mr. Barr's letters also says we need to develop a culture that empowers supervisors to act in the face of uncertainty. In the case of SBB, supervisors delayed action to gather more evidence, even as weaknesses were clear and growing. Supervisors delayed actions to gather more evidence, even as weaknesses were clear and growing. This meant that supervisors did not force SBB to fix its problems, even as those problems worsened. So that's where you could see them becoming more forceful. Earlier, there was the reference to the word forceful. That's them going, the agencies going from zero to 60 quicker, raising something to a document of resolution, writing a regional director letter, issuing a letter of understanding and agreement. Those are the kind of things from a credit union perspective that pop into my mind that they want to be more aggressive. The challenge is that liquidity is kind of like grabbing an ice cube and holding onto it. It starts to melt in your hand, pun intended as, as far as liquid and ice and liquidity. But it's not the easiest thing to get your arms on. It's not the easiest thing to hold. And so situations like that are very nebulous on how I would see NCUA trying to regulate that more. They are doing it. And I'm seeing the beginnings with some of the situations I'm involved with with my clients where they're being a little more aggressive, a little bit more forceful. So there's no doubt that what's going on in liquidity and then shots across the bow of SVB and Signature Bank does have NCUA's attention. And in if you find yourself to be an outlier in some of the liquidity statistics, you can expect them to be more forceful next time they come to your credit union. Last, we need to guard against complacency. More than a decade of banking system stability and strong performance by banks of all sizes may have led bankers to be overconfident and supervisors to be too accepting. Supervisors should be encouraged to evaluate risks with rigor and consider a range of potential shocks and vulnerabilities so that they think through the implications of tail events and severe consequences. So what do I think of when I hear that? They're talking about black swan events. And SVB may have been a black swan event, although you could argue their management was so inadequate that they should have seen it coming. So it wasn't a black swan event, but the black swan event was the run that was triggered by the new world we live in, where a few people can pull a lot of money out quick. And then with the social media, the landslide begins. They go on to write about having a stronger regulatory framework. Our second area of focus will be to raise the baseline for resilience. Our experience following SVB's failure demonstrated that it is appropriate to have stronger standards applied to a broad set of firms. As a result, we plan to revisit the tailoring framework, including to reevaluate a range of rules for banks with $100 billion of more in assets. What's the corollary for credit unions? The NCUA could look at the rules of one's credit unions over $15 billion. Now, I believe NCUA's Enterprise Risk Management committee recently looked at the one structure. So my bet is that they will be assigning that enterprise risk management task force at NCUA to look at what they might want to do for large institutions that report to the Office of National Exam and Supervision. In addition, let me go through some specific rules that should be modified or reevaluated. We need to evaluate how we supervise and regulate a bank's management of interest rate risk. While interest rate risk is a core risk of banking that is not 
new to banks or supervisors. SBB did not appropriately manage its interest rate risk and supervisors did not force the bank to fix these issues quickly enough. So what could that mean? You could see NCUA coming out saying, if you have intense interest rate risk issues, that they're going to be less concerned about earnings. They're going to be less concerned about capital in the short run, that if you can purge some assets and purge some liabilities, borrowings, for example, that can improve your long-term interest rate risk, that NCUA may push you in that direction, even if it might impact your capital, even if it might impact your earnings, because ultimately that will reduce the risk to their insurance fund. In addition, we are also going to evaluate how we supervise and regulate liquidity risk, starting with the risk of uninsured deposits. Liquidity requirements and models used by both banks and supervisors should better capture the liquidity risk of a firm's uninsured deposit base. For instance, we should reevaluate the stability of uninsured deposits and the treatment of held to maturity securities in our standardized liquidity rules and in a firm's internal liquidity stress tests. We should also consider applying standardized liquidity requirements to a broader set of firms. Any adjustments to our liquidity rules would, of course, go through normal notice and comment rulemakings and have appropriate transition rules and thus would not be effective for several years. So that's good. They're not going to rush into this, but let's kind of unpack this. The liquidity requirements and models used by both banks and supervisors should better capture the liquidity risk of the firm's uninsured deposit base. So my guess is you're going to see NCUA, and I predicted this on the front end, that they might come up with some guidance on uninsured deposits. I think that'll be coming a little slower than I might have predicted earlier, but there will be something relative to that. There will be guidance on uninsured deposits. The great thing is credit unions don't really have that big of an issue here, but I think you'll start to see the vendors, the ALM providers looking at this. Matter of fact, they already are building it into their models so that when NCUA comes in and looks at your models, you can see that it's being looked at. For instance, it says, again, reiterating, we should reevaluate the stability of uninsured deposits and the treatment of held to maturity securities and standardized liquidity rules and in a firm's internal liquidity stress test. So essentially, you know, hiding losses in hold to maturity investments, A, isn't necessarily wise, but B, I don't think it's either they're going to say you can't do it anymore or they're going to fully discount it. And you know, I did some analysis of billion-dollar-plus credit unions and who has the highest amount of losses hiding in hold of maturity. And I don't think I'm going to do anything publicly on that, but let's just say that there are some outliers there of some folks that have hold of maturity portfolios that are substantially, substantially underwater and that the banks and I believe NCUA will be tweaking their regulatory accounting approach to fully discount that so that it doesn't get masked or hidden because the losses are there. And as as I've said here frequently, liquidity matters most when your asset quality deteriorates. If you can't, if you don't have the ability to hold your assets and your assets are underwater, whether they're loans that are mispriced that, that, or, or were priced and put on the books when rates were lower or they were investments of that variety, if you don't have the liquidity to hold, it on, hold those investments and those loans are deteriorating, that's when it becomes an issue. So hiding it and holding maturity is really pointless. And I doubt that they will allow that to continue. And they'll be looking at that as well as uninsured deposits moving forward. With respect to capital, we are going to evaluate how to improve our capital requirements in light of lessons learned from SP.
GB, for instance, we should require a broader set of firms to take into account unrealized gains or losses on available for sale securities so that a firm's capital requirements are better aligned with its financial position and risk. Again, the losses are the losses and you shouldn't be able to count them just because you are accounting for them in one way. Again, these changes would not be effective for several years because of the standard notice and comment rulemaking process and would be accompanied by an appropriate phase-in, which is good. Stress testing is a key supervisory tool and tailoring changes reduced its coverage and timeliness for some firms. We will be revisiting this approach. And that's the political football where they changed the rule on what size institutions needed to do the stress testing so that SVB had to do it later. And then when they did it, the transition between the banking departments and essentially in football terms, they fumbled it. Oversight of incentives for bank managers should also be improved. SVB senior management responded to the incentives approved by its board of directors. They were not compensated to manage the bank's risk and they did not do so effectively. We should consider setting tougher minimum standards for incentive compensation programs and ensure banks comply with the standards we already have. So that probably is a reference to an incentive structure that said, I get bonuses if we grow. So they were out there trying to grow regardless of what it did for their risk. That would be my guess. So watch for something on incentive pay that makes, that tries to create a regulation to rein that in. And of course, that will likely trickle down to NCUA, although their rule, I think is about 25 years old. They've done a notice of interest about revising that rule because it's kind of arcane as it relates to any elements of loan volume, for example, but this could even further slow down NCUA's potential new rule down the road, as well as that could be that could be slowed by a change from the NCUA board, because currently there's two Republicans, one Democrat and board member Hood's term is up in August, which means he will be replaced by a Democrat as soon as the Biden administration nominates someone and gets approved. But as somebody said in an earlier podcast, NCUA is the only agency that is being run by a majority Republican rule, and that should be one that they move to politically decide to resolve quickly. Although I say this, this board is working well together. It's more something the D's are going to want to do than they need to do, but I think that will happen relatively quickly. He goes on to close, contagion from the failure of SVB threatened the ability of a broader range of banks to provide financial services and access to credit for individuals, families, and businesses. Fast and forceful action by the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the Treasury Department helped to contain the damage, but weaknesses in supervision and regulation must be fixed. In doing so, we should be humble about our ability and that of bank managers to predict how losses might be incurred, how a future financial crisis might unfold, and what the effect of a financial crisis might be on the financial system and our broader economy. Greater resilience will guard against the risks that we may not fully appreciate today. The report is a self-assessment, a critical part of prudent risk management, and what we ask the banks we supervise to do when they have a weakness. It is essential for strengthening our own supervision and regulation. I am grateful to the staff who conducted the review and prepared this report. I also appreciate that others will have their own perspectives on this episode. We welcome external reviews of SVB's failure, as well as congressional oversight, and we intend to take these into account as we make changes to our framework of bank supervision and regulation to ensure that the banking system remains strong and resilient. So 
That's the executive summary. There's a lot more here. This will have some impact on credit unions along the lines of what I pointed out there. There will be more reports coming. There's a GAO report. I haven't had the time to start to read. I will take a look at that and probably record a podcast relative to that or post on LinkedIn. Uh, So stay tuned. More to come. It's going to be a long arc, but there will be some trickle down to credit unions. And as I know more, I will let you know here on the podcast. And again, I want to thank you for listening. This is my 99th episode, and I'm going to have an episode later this week, which will be my 100th episode. So watch for that. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 